Jonathan Romain is a rabbi who lives and works in Maidenhead. Jonathan talks to Michael Barclay about his work as an agony uncle on the Jewish Chronicle and on LBC Radio. Rabbi, writer and broadcaster Jonathan Romain is minister of Maidenhead Synagogue and one of Britain's leading rabbis in Reform Judaism. He's the author of 20 books, some scholarly and learned, and others which are just very funny, revealing the ups and downs of his day-to-day work in a way which will resonate with vicars, priests and religious leaders of any description. He's also become a kind of agony uncle, dispensing advice on love affairs, marriage, parenthood, and he's written about all this in Confessions of a Rabbi and in his latest book, The Naked Rabbi. Some of his advice I found quite surprising, of which more later. On the more serious side, he's a prominent figure in the campaign for assisted dying. He was awarded an MBE for his work on interfaith marriage, and he spent much of the last year working with Ukrainian refugees. Let's talk about your work uh, as an agony uncle, if we may, Jonathan. Over the years, people in your synagogue have come to you with their problems, and you also write a problem page in the Jewish Chronicle. So to give some examples of recent columns, is online betting kosher? No. Is it okay to go into a church? Yes. Does a dog have a soul? Well, what's the answer to that one? I'm not sure, to be honest. (laughs) It's a rather sweet question, and it came from the father of a boy after the family dog died, didn't it? Yes, uh, certainly I would say that dogs are are very precious parts of the family, and even, I mean, certainly when there's a family, but even more so when someone's living alone, and their dog is their partner and their companion, and there's an enormous sense of grief and loss when they pass away. And so, I, you know, the, the, the more common question is not whether they have a soul, but can I do a burial, can I do a funeral, can I say a prayer? Because, and, and although some rabbis would dismiss that as nonsense, you know, it's only for humans, I would certainly help because a pet is, is part of the family. Mm. I, I was quite surprised reading your books to learn how much you're called on to answer questions about the very intimate lives of the people in your synagogue. And, and you're not only relaxed about the fact that some marriages are just not worth saving, you don't mind. In fact, I think you even find you've got to get to the heart of the matter by probing quite openly about, really, do you still have sex, for example? Uh, yes, I mean, that question comes up when a, a, a couple come to me and they talk about their problems. And I actually ask that question usually within the first five minutes, which, and there's a sudden sort of like, <gasps> shock, and their, <laughs> their eyes open, and how dare he ask a question like that, and why is he probing? But I find, um, partly because it does get to the nub of the matter, because actually, time and time again, and this isn't a rule, but it's a generalisation, if a couple, yes, they have roused, but they're still making love every, every now and then, and still mm. cuddling in bed, it means there is a connection, there's a bond, there's a basic affection and affinity. If actually, as one couple told me, well, we haven't slept together for eight years, then you know something's seriously wrong, unless there's a particular medical reason for it. So you believe in taking the shortcut to get to the core of the matter. Yes, and, and actually I had a very good training because for uh, several years I was literally the agony uncle um, or agony rabbi on LBC radio. Mm. And of course all, <laughs> we, we were confined by the fact that we had to deal with someone uh, between the adverts. <laughs> so I only had about seven minutes to sort someone's life out. And of course the other thing about radio is you can't be silent and ponder and have deep looking into their eyes. You've got to just keep going. Not everybody that's listening to us now will probably know that Judaism 
is more relaxed about divorce than Christianity, isn't it? Judaism has always taken this attitude that, you know, marriage can be wonderful uh, if it works, but if it doesn't, well, okay, you know, it's it's not a prison, not a life sentence, and uh, the hope is that not only can they get divorced, but they can get remarried. And and I don't know about you, but uh, certainly uh, your listeners will often know that actually it's the second marriage that can be the better marriage. As a reform rabbi, you don't have a problem marrying same-sex couples, do you? No, um, this is fairly new, I should say, within the last 10 years. And we've realised that, you know, at, at the end of the day, if you believe in God then, um, and, and you believe that God is behind creation, then God created people, lesbian or gay, and therefore, uh, who am I to uh, deny their godliness or goodness? Hmm. Rimsky-Korsakov next. And I think you've got quite an interesting story behind this choice. Oh, this is because this is the first piece of classical music that I ever heard. Um, my, my father brought it home one day. Um, I was quite young, I don't know, seven or eight. And, and he was very much um, a self-educated man because of the war. He went to a different school every year for about seven or eight years. And later on, he went to night school. Later on, he, he did the Open University. And he brought this home because he wanted to educate himself musically as well. And I was just entranced. It was just magical. Vasily Petrenko conducting the Oslo Philharmonic Orchestra in music from Scheherazade, The Sea and Sinbad Ship by Rimsky-Korsakov. Music you discovered uh, in your childhood, Jonathan. Your mother's family had been murdered in the Holocaust, and I wonder how much you were aware of the dark shadow of the war growing up. Yes, I have a very early memory of it. Uh, I was just sitting on my mother's lap and I must have been oh, I don't know, four or five, something like that um, and she was showing me the family photo album and saying this is my cousin this is my aunt and this is, and, and I said well hang on, I've never met any of them and then from being a very sort of friendly and smiley, she suddenly went very cold and said, no, and you never will, and closed the book. Mm. And I always thought that was odd. And, of course, it was only years later that I realised that they were the ones that didn't get out. And I actually had a large family, but only three of whom came to this country. Uh, and they all died or killed in, in Auschwitz. Uh, it was a, an awareness from a very early age. It's interesting the way guilt plays out among survivors from that point of view, isn't it? 
Yes, um, and my mother, uh, for instance, uh, never went back to Germany, whereas other people did. Uh, she felt that the, the, the Germany and what it stood for had been poisoned for her. And I actually, I did go to Germany myself a couple of times for interfaith conferences. And the first time, I felt really, really bad going there. Mm. And um, it was uh, like I was, uh, I was entering a national prison camp, which was not true. It was just my feelings based on the unconscious um, uh, vibes I'd received from my uh, upbringing. One concern uh, I know has been the dwindling of the Jewish community during this generation as people marry out. And you've said some pretty controversial things about this. You don't think it's a problem, do you, if Jews marry people of other religions? Well, um, uh, there is a possible problem, I put it like that, because I suppose any minister of religion wants people to marry within their faith, fellow Sikh, fellow Catholic, partly to continue the faith uh, for themselves, but also so it goes to the next generation. And there's always a danger that if you have a mixed-faith marriage, then the, the religion won't go to the, the next generation. And therefore, until recently, those couples were completely ostracised, um, which seemed to me absolutely bonkers, because, number one, that guaranteed, if you pushed them away, and you would literally ring up a rabbi or a Catholic priest and say, I'm marrying somebody of a different faith, the phone would go slam down. And this is what we're talking about in the 1970s, 80s. And that would just make sure that they had nothing to do with the church or synagogue. Um, uh, you know, the, the, one of the reasons my own synagogue maidenhead has grown enormously, by which I mean when I came it was about 70 families, now it's 900, is precisely because we've taken down the barbed wire and put up the welcome sign and said it doesn't matter if you're in a mixed-faith marriage or single or gay or whatever, um, you are welcome as you are. You avoided all this controversy in your own personal life by the simple expedient, Jonathan, of marrying another rabbi. In fact, you were the first two rabbis, I think, to get married in 1981. What's it like being married to another rabbi? Oh, good fun. <laughs> um, I mean, in fact, I, I find it impossible to think of being married to someone who isn't a, mar a, a rabbi. We don't see a lot of each other because we're both working in our own different congregations. Um, but uh, it's enormously uh, valuable to actually be able to share not just home life and family and children, but also our professional lives rather than make them sort of no-go areas.
Jeremy Irons has recorded the Psalms from the Authorised Version of the Bible. Today we hear Jeremy reading Psalm 92. It's followed by Richard Strauss's Morgan, played by the London Symphony Orchestra. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord, and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High, to show forth thy loving kindness in the morning, and thy faithfulness every night, upon an instrument of ten strings, and upon the psaltery, upon the harp, with a solemn sound. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. A brutish man knoweth not, neither doth a fool understand this. When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. But thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Mine eye also shall see my desire on mine enemies, and mine ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like the palm tree, and he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing, to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him.
This week we hear journalist Belle Mooney reading a poem by Robert Hayden called Belston, The Day of Liberation. The poet Michael Simmons Roberts, Jamaican Muslim Manira Pilgrim and Canon Mark Oakley, Dean of St John's College, Cambridge, also contribute to the discussion. Well, you're listening to a special 500th edition of Beyond Belief, coming from the Contain Strong Language Poetry Festival in Coventry, where we're exploring whether poetry is the proper language of religion. And with me are Belle Mooney, Mark Oakley, Michael Simmons-Roberts and Monira Pilgrim. Time for our third poem. And Belle, you've chosen a powerful piece that reflects on the Holocaust. Why did you choose this poem? Well... I chose this poem by Robert Hayden, a black American poet I really admire. He was raised a Baptist, but practiced the Baha'i faith, um, which is itself very interesting because it's about unity. This poem, called Belson, the Day of Liberation, is dedicated to a Dutch resistance fighter, a secular Jew, and who lost her parents in the Holocaust and was herself imprisoned. Now, the child in the poem views the liberators of, of, of Belson, who are British soldiers, of course, as saviours, as transfigured, like angels coming in, as people of beauty and strength. And so this poem, to me, expresses absolute universality. And it is a reminder that the human spirit has no colour or creed or culture or class. It's transcendent. And I find this poem transcendent. So it's called Belson, Day of Liberation by Robert Hayden for Rosie. Her parents and her dolls destroyed, her childhood foreclosed. She watched the foreign soldiers from the sunlit window whose black bars were crooked crosses inked upon her pallid face. Liebchen, Liebchen, you should be in bed. But she felt ill no longer. And because that day was a holy day, when even the dead, it seemed, must rise, she was allowed to stay and see the golden strangers who were father, brother, and her dream of God. Afterwards, she said, they were so beautiful and they were not afraid. Michael, I'm struck by that enigmatic phrase at the end. They were so beautiful and they were not afraid. Words of a child who'd seen a lot of ugliness and known a lot of fear. Mm. I, I think it's incredibly moving and, and powerful. And that link between beauty and deliverance, beauty and rescue. I love Robert Hayden's work. And it's a note that he strikes a lot, that sense that... Um, Another American poet, John Berryman, at a crisis in his life, talked about the, the God of rescue. He said, this is the only one I've got left, is the idea, I cling on to the idea of the God of rescue. And this seems to me to be the God of rescue at the end of the Robert Hayden poem. And the idea that that comes with, of all the things you could say of someone who's, who's rescuing you, to point out their beauty, I think, is, is a very profound... It's Keatsian, isn't it? The, <laughs> the truth and beauty arriving as one. Manira? I think what I really liked about the poem was just it just reminded me that like having young people having children around 
makes us as a species a very beautiful species. There's always hope. There's always chance. There's always an opportunity to see beauty, even in some of the dullest moments, in some of the moments where we may, you know, as adults, we may cry, we may want to give up. A child would, could turn that all around, and that's what I loved about the poem. Mark? Yes, I mean, I think it was Adorno who, who said no poetry after Auschwitz but this is therefore a very courageous poem to talk of the dream of God in the shadow of such horrific history I admire it for that for me because it does that it's placing the as it were the odd back into God Uh, there's a lot of domesticated cheap easy talk about God uh, and there shouldn't be and this is this is a daring thing to do to talk about concentration camps and the dream of God in the same work. And uh, that, for me, is very provoking. The question that lies at the heart of the religious quest, you know, ultimately, is reality trustworthy? Uh, And it hovers, I think, at the end of that poem. And it makes the 15th of April, 1945, a holy day. And we know from the descriptions of what it was like in Balsam, it was hell. So it is incredibly, it's a great leap of imagination and faith to call that day holy. But in this poem, it is holy. It also reminds me of that expression, uh, I can't remember who says it, but if you're going to go to hell, make sure you don't come back empty-handed. And even if it was just that poem that came back, maybe that's enough. 